Hi there, welcome to Active Intelligence. I'm Aaron Ironside and I hope you'll spend the next half an hour with me as we take a look at some of the more controversial topics that our culture is facing. But we try to do that more with balance than bias to give you a chance to hear both sides of the story. And today is a very timely one as Auckland continues on in level three lockdown and the final term of the school year uh, started from home again, lockdown learning today on Active Intelligence. On today's episode, I caught up with Patrick Walsh. He's the principal of John Paul College to talk about what it's been like for educators to have to change so dramatically. I mean, there's pivoting and then there's pivoting. Hard to believe that it was March of last year, of course, as the nation was thrust into the first major level four lockdown, thanks to COVID-19, that it was parents and teachers who had to do the biggest pivot, really, for, for many, certainly the entire education sector had to change. Teachers were now moving from classrooms to online environments where partly it was the parents that they were teaching so that they could in turn teach the children. It got kind of complicated and of course so many of us were not familiar with online life. We'd never had a Zoom meeting in our life and of course with Zoom came some comic relief as Zoom calls and Zoom teaching didn't always work out for our educators girls it's so lovely to be in your homes today and i look forward to Indeed, us going on Which means that it's two words that um, we put together to make another word. Um, moon and light form moonlight. Uh, the next word we have is cooler bag. Cooler bag can also be a um, compound word, cooler and then bag. All right, it's a light-hearted start to today's episode because, frankly, after this many weeks of lockdown in Auckland, I need a good chuckle. So uh, let's not just poke the borax at the teachers. And the teachers have done incredibly well. I think most of us uh, would marvel at the extra workload and capacity and innovation that teachers have had to demonstrate so quickly uh, as they've come to terms with life in lockdown. How to do lessons in lockdown life has not been easy for teachers but for parents I mean well they weren't teachers to begin with they were not professional educators so for them this was a huge step up uh, well and for some it kind of brought out different parts of their personality uh, and well let's have a little bit of fun with the very different types of dad approaches to being a lockdown teacher. Uh, yeah g'day and welcome to this instructional video on how to homeschool kids in lockdown. Yeah. The Google Dad, an adjective, well, uh, that is very clear, you know, an adjective is, you. what's that? Look on, yeah. that fitness freak dad. Okay, counting back from a thousand, you ready? One thousand, nine eight nine, nine eight eight, nine nine seven. That brainy dad, come on this is basic maths, I know you know this. Value of pi, 3.141592, yada yada yada. Pythagoras theorem, anything. 
the chores dad. Right, so how many toilet brushes does the toilet have? One. Exactly, and how many minutes will it take you to clean it? There you go, go find out. The life lessons dad, maths time. Right, so in our pot of gold, we've got $300, right? But mummy, mummy wants to buy a $300 dress. Okay, so if we took the 300 out of our pot of gold to buy mummy's dress, how much would we have left? Zero. Zero, exactly. And you go tell mummy that buying the dress is a stupid, a, a silly idea, all right? Good luck. That she'll be right, Dad. Right, you just watch the CSI reruns and you gotta try and figure out who did it. She'll be right. Yeah, there certainly are lots of different approaches to it. And I suspect this deep into lockdown again, level three in Auckland and day 60 something, I'm just losing track of them, to be honest. Uh, a lot of dads, a lot of parents will be uh, wanting to adopt some of those really kind of uh, laissez-faire approaches because they're running out of steam. Uh, they weren't expecting to have to be the educator uh, for so long. It has changed everything. Of course, if you have a teenager, you'll be aware that they are feeling a bit anxious about uh, this time of year. They're supposed to be swatting for NCEA exams and of course those exams would be uh, the ticket to university or to tertiary education and that whole process has been really disrupted and that's an understatement uh, by COVID-19 and the government's elimination strategy which has had us spend so much time at home in an attempt to get rid of COVID-19 from our community. Uh, today's guest is a school principal who's had to lead a, a large college through this. John Paul College is the college and its principal, Patrick Walsh, joins me. Kia ora. Well, take us back a year if you can. I don't imagine that anyone was prepared to suddenly hear that the nation was being thrust into lockdown and that the teachers of our nation would in fact turn into the trainers of parents who would have to join them in the ranks of teachers up and down the land. What do you remember of that time? Well, I remember when the announcement was made, most people anticipated it was simply going to be like previous pandemics that we've had, that it was basically isolated to places like China and Asia, and that we would quickly overcome it, and then life would return to normal. So gradually the penny dropped that this uh, COVID-19 was here to stay, and we were going to have to make major adjustments for it in the educational context, both educationally, and of course a steep learning curve for teachers and principals dealing with this at the emotional and psychological level as well. Well, for those of us who don't have school-aged children anymore, to take us through what it became like for teachers and parents to navigate continuing education from home. Well, I think at the outset, it's important to recognise that uh, teachers fundamentally have a strong interest in the educational well-being of students. And so when it became disruptive in terms of lockdown, the teachers focused on how they're going to catch up with their work, how they're going to prepare for NCA, uh, those sorts of matters, how they're going to connect with distance learning. What we've learned since the second lockdown, however, is that actually the focus needs to be on the emotional and psychological well-being of students. That has to play uh, the key role in the success of students because they have been suffering anxiety uh, at the worst end, self-harm, suicidal ideation, uh, feelings of isolation. So when you consider all of that in, in that context, 
then academic progress uh, certainly has to play second fiddle. Well, it certainly does. And of course, parents uh, felt like they were now uh, having to play second fiddle to the teacher and, and become a teacher aide, even though they weren't prepared. And some have taken that in a good humoured kind of way. I know some of my friends have joked that they're pretty sure their eight year old can do better maths than they can. But this was not an easy thing for parents who were dealing with an immense amount of disruption to their own life now required to try and navigate this home education. I mean, how did the parents go? Uh, we found it was quite nuanced actually, Aaron. There were some uh, parents that were really well set up for it in the sense that they were already working from home. They were very computer literate. They had spaces for their children to work. Um, where other parents uh, found it very difficult, there were lack of devices, connectivity issues with the internet, uh, a number of children at home. So they were juggling a lot of balls and that became very, very stressful. So our experience was that um, it was very different uh, in households. And in fact, uh, schools had to make quite significant adjustments around that. Um, we found that the feedback we got from parents was, you know, we just don't have time to sit down with our children to help them with their work because we're juggling our own work commitments. Uh, we're really busy. The house, the house is overcrowded. So please uh, lay off that. And, that, and that's, a, that's an important lesson that we learned. Well, of course, it wasn't just the disruption during lockdown, was it? That when lockdown ended, many schools realised that whatever plans they had, they'd have to hold very lightly or indeed put in the nearest rubbish bin. You know, camps weren't able to happen. School productions were often cancelled. How disruptive has it been to the, even the whole planning process of how the school organises itself? It's been hugely disruptive and I feel very strongly for the senior students who have um, a, a number of important milestones through their life that they uh, look forward to. For example, a school ball, which is um, you know a, a, an important feature of a senior school student's uh, life at a school, and that was taken away from them. So were school camps. Uh, it's looking like the prospect of prize giving is going as well. And it's, it's very difficult for schools to work through students with those issues because most of them have grown up in an environment where really bad things haven't happened to them. And so the resilience level of those students hasn't been quite that strong. And so they can tend to catastrophize the loss of things like a school ball. And it's important in those contexts for both the school and the parents to work uh, through those issues with them. Well, it's tempting to have a wry smile about a young person being so upset about something that we know is relatively insignificant for their life, like the school ball. But of course, when you're 15, 16, 17, you don't have those many things to be focused on and excited about. When you think about sort of the lockdown experience for the students that you've been working with and have been aware of, I mean, is there a story that comes to mind that in so many ways captures just how difficult this experience has been? Yes, we, we've had uh, a number of students who, who work uh, or who live in, in, in country areas because they come from farming communities. And for us to just appreciate the absolute frustrations they've had around connectivity um, have been quite awe-inspiring. Some of them have had to take their laptop in their car, drive three or four kilometres down the road to sit under a tower so they can get uh, proper internet access They've also advised us that they're up at 5.30 in the morning milking cows and between milking cows, uh, cutting hay and doing lots of other work around the farm, they have to fit their lessons in as well. 
So those um, stories are very inspiring because it just makes us appreciate that there's more to life than what kids do at school. So being able to have a glimpse and insight into their life at home and how difficult it's been and how resilient and enterprising they've been and and be able to manage all the difficulties around distance learning. Well, tell us about the other side of that, the the ones, the despairing stories, the ones that disappoint you to uh, have lived through. And, and again, it's that complexity that, of course, is not just the young people who are concerned. The, the teachers themselves are just as affected by lockdown as anybody else. And you've mentioned the, the mental health challenges that have become more and more commonplace. What has that experience been like in its darkest moments for our young people? Those stories have been very, very sad, Aaron. You'll be aware that many schools, particularly in lower decile areas, run the food in schools program. And that's because they come from home environments where they don't get regular meals and parents struggle to put food on the table. So one of our greatest concerns has been that the students who receive those uh, meals at school, what was going to happen to them during lockdown. And in fact, um, many of them have uh, communicated that You know, they have been hungry for long periods of time. Their parents have been able to get out to the supermarkets. And even if they had, they haven't been able to have enough money to buy the basics for their children. Our stories of, you know, three or four, sometimes five or six kids living in the same bedroom, uh, issues of domestic violence, uh, alcohol use by their parents. So in those contexts, very, very difficult for those students to do any quality learning at all because they're just basically coping with the home environment and it brings brought home us brought home to us the point that you know for a lot of these kids their safe place was in fact at the school um, that's where they got a meal that's where they were able to interact uh, with their friends and being at home 24 uh, 7 was a very unpleasant and unsafe place for them well, we know that if you're a younger student, the disruption to your overall educational pathway probably isn't too bad. One year, maybe even two years can be sort of bounced back from. But if you're at the end of school and suddenly you're needing to get NCEA to be able to get into your tertiary education, to be able to begin a career, then the effects are much more pronounced. How on earth have young people faced that pressure, been able to even get the qualifications they need? It's been extremely uh, difficult, and that again has been very nuanced. In fact, in our school, the, the students that seem to be most stressed and anxious were our high achieving students because they're very well planned, they know exactly where they want to go, how many credits they need at what particular level. And to have this massive disruption in their lives has caused significant anxiety because they generally want to get into courses that are restricted, such as medicine, law, and engineering. So they've been uh, on the case of their teachers, wanting extra work, wanting to know what they need to do to ensure they get the grades so that they gain access into the universities. So that's been uh, hugely stressful. At the other end, we've had students because of personal circumstances have just disengaged. And so it's been a massive effort by teachers to try and catch those students up, particularly in areas like technology, where they haven't had access, access to woodwork, metalwork rooms, and they then can't complete the practical component of the NCA requirements. I've been very gratified by teachers who have opened up their workshops 
uh, in the evenings, holidays and weekends to support the students getting through NCA. When you mention those extra mile efforts that teachers, students, parents are making, is that part of perhaps been the sort of the upside to all of this? Is that it's forced us to really lean into supporting each other, connecting with each other, or is this kind of more like the straw that breaks the camel's back? I think it's been a bit of both, Aaron. I mean, I, I, I've, I've had uh, emails and letters from parents who've had a really positive experience of lockdown. And the experience has been that they've been forced into a situation where they're with their teenage children for a long period of time. And that has necessitated um, those conversations that they haven't had with their teenagers sometimes for many years. They got to talk about real issues. They got to work as a family unit. Um, they engaged in long walks together. They baked together. They sat down and watch a mo- uh, watched a movie. They played board games. And these are things they hadn't done for years with their teenagers. And they found that a really gratifying, uh, soul-enhancing experience. Um, Others were just tearing their hair out and were going to live in the back shed because they just couldn't cope with their teenagers being at home with them, the mess in the bathroom and all the sort of issues that teenagers bring with them and no escape from it. Well, of course, the education sector is a microcosm of what's happening in the community at large. We have bounced in and out of lockdown now for two years. That has been the elimination strategy in full flight. As an educator, you're in the business of giving report cards. So would you give a report card to the approach towards COVID-19 in so much as how it's affected your sector? I think um, the Ministry of Education has to be congratulated for the high level of communication they've had with the education sector, the level of support in terms of the rollout of devices, communication with principals, and the recognition credits that they've given to uh, senior students. So I think that's been a real plus. I think uh, teachers, um, again, have gone the extra mile. They've really had deep concern not only for the educational progress of their students but also their pastoral care. So we've had deans, counsellors and principals who get in their car, will drive the houses, ring homes, drop off devices, open up their classrooms to support kids. I think that's been massive. Uh, For parents, and again it's not a judgment of parents, some have coped really well and others I think um, who were struggling pre-COVID that just accentuated the problems they had in their life and they've required a lot of additional support. And unfortunately, some of those kids have fallen by the wayside. I know principals report in Auckland, for instance, that uh, some of those kids have gone out to work in essential industries like supermarkets and are just putting food on the table, haven't engaged in education and are not likely to return. Well, now, of course, we are entering the next phase. Elimination, we know, really can't happen. That COVID is with us. And so now the issue is around vaccination. Now, that, of course, is an issue that affects, again, all of us. Uh, it's a very divisive issue. Those who have concerns over vaccinations are very concerned about them being mandated. And it turns out that education may be one of the first sectors, along with, with health, to actually be forced to mandate at some level the vaccination of staff. How has that very contentious issue being handled in your world? I think you're right, it is a very contentious issue, but I've been surprised that since the announcement of the government that 
the, the vast majority of of teachers have bought into it. They basically accepted that while we're a democracy and individual choice is important, that we are in unique circumstances. This is a pandemic. And while individual rights are really important, that ultimately the team of five million, the common good in this circumstance has to prevail. They also accept that the science tells us that the only way out of COVID-19 and pandemics and lockdown is in fact to get the vast majority of people vaccinated. And if you're not well, you get tested. In the school setting, uh, we know that young people are vulnerable to Delta. Uh, we know that they can take that disease back to their own whanau into their community and they can become super spreaders. So when you put it all in that context, um, it seems to me, and I think the vast majority of teachers who are role models in the industry that vaccination, including it being mandated, is the right way to go. Well, finally, we now know that things are not just temporarily being disrupted. The disruption may be, in one way or another, permanent. What's going to be the ongoing effect of COVID on education in this country? Is it been the catalyst for some kind of reformation, new approaches? What does the future look like? Absolutely, Aaron. I think one of the key messages and learnings that have come out of this for us is that for high quality learning to take place it doesn't always have to take pl take place in a school setting that if you have high quality distance learning and you've got the device and you've got the internet connection then a lot of that can be done at home you can't substitute face-to-face -face teaching but a blend of both face-to-face -face teaching and distance learning can work and then secondly i think that teachers uh, have realized that they have a bigger role to play in the lives of young people, which is not just simply being dispensers of education, but having that strong pastoral care and relationship connection. Patrick Walsh from John Paul College, really giving a lot of uh, high grades, I thought, for parents and teachers and for the uh, education system itself as it's responded to COVID-19. And to be honest, I think by and large, that praise is quite well founded. Of course, we want to get out of lockdown. The only way out of lockdown, the government tells us, is vaccination. And so that's why, of course, uh, health workers and educators have been told that they must be vaccinated. So it's a, a form of mandatory vaccination, which of course for many got their hackles up straight away. Don't tell me I have to get the jab. No jab, no job. We were told at one point it wouldn't come to that. But our port workers and border workers were the first to realise that, well, that wouldn't be true for their sector. Now health and education have followed. Uh, and it might be interesting to note, though, that this is not the first time in history by any stretch that governments have had to consider mandatory vaccination. The first vaccine that was ever um, made mandatory was the smallpox vaccine, and that happened in Britain. And that was in 1853. And uh, children were required to be vaccinated and there was a fine imposed, uh, which would be equivalent to about $180 today. 
And what was really interesting about this is it stimulated the rise of the anti-vaccination movement, a really strong uprising, a really strong movement that actually spread overseas. And the arguments are all very similar to what we hear today, a lot of the hysterical misinformation. So we do have to be careful when we make uh, vaccines um, mandatory that we don't kind of stimulate this you know, huge outcry at what is seen as to be an unfair uh, situation. I think a certain amount of arm twisting by governments is perfectly justified. But when it goes too far and um, it becomes too coercive, then what worries me is that it infringes on people's you know, bodily autonomy and right to decide what goes on with their body. And it also shows that you've kind of basically lost the argument, the public health argument, that these things are a good thing for you to take. While some might say on the heels of Super Saturday that that might be some kind of a confession of defeat of the public health message. Because after all, uh, if people really believed that the vaccine was that good, why did they wait so long? Or perhaps they caught wind of the fact that you might be able to get some prizes uh, if you just waited uh, a little bit longer. Anyway, I'm glad that the Super Saturday event has been a success in so many ways, of course. It has now taken away the vaccination conversation because near 90% of us at least have one jab. And so in that sense, uh, we've decided. Uh, But what about those who haven't decided or have decided that it's definitely not for them? Well, they are a minority, uh, but now they risk, of course, losing their jobs. I have a friend who's a principal of a college up in the far north, and he's one who very much objects to the pressure being applied to him uh, and being told that if he doesn't get the vaccination, that he loses his job, as do his staff. I know that this might be a hill to die on for some, uh, but for other educators, it's just a case of putting the safety of the children and the community first. What we know for a fact is that COVID has had a detrimental effect on the children's outcomes, the children's achievement and the children's learning. It is putting pressure on parents. The best place for children is back at school. The only way we're going to do that is is to ensure that the environment that they come back to and the environment they're coming from is safe. And if we look at that as our why, then having this vaccine isn't an issue of someone telling you what to do, but it's you making a choice in relation to what will keep yourself, your family and the children safe. And I think it's very important that people see that. I've... but. Also, as leaders within the uh, education sector and, of course, in the health, we need to continue to talanoa. And so I've already had some talanoa with some some of my staff that were reluctant, and it's important to hear them out. And then when I've revisited some, they've already changed their mind and are taking the vaccine because they just needed that time. But if we put in measures, we just have to make sure that we, we treat people as people, and soon enough, they will see that, that they need to take that vaccine. And what's been the response like uh, even from the parents as well? Are, are they concerned as well about this? Everybody is scared of the Delta variant and everybody is anxious. Everybody is not a, an expert in how best to do whatever. We already know that uh, a large number of my community have already said they will not be returning back to level one. I live with my partner and we have a five-year-old son and she's already said to me, she ain't going back to work to level one. And that's fine. She's fully vaccinated and that's that choice. But some of our families cannot choose to keep them home and they need to return their children to school. 
If you look at my school, for example, John, we have 700 children. That means that 45 adults will be vaccinated and 700 children will not be vaccinated because they are all under the age of 12. So we need to think about how are we going to manage that safely, not knowing where these children are coming from, but just hoping that our community actually say, hey, I'm sending my child to school and my part is being vaccinated and coming from a home where we value all the safety procedures and processes around uh, keeping ourselves safe with COVID. This is a fascinating social experiment, isn't it? The vaccination debate. It's brought out some ugliness on both sides. Pressure from the vaccinated to say to those who aren't yet vaccinated, hey, you're the ones keeping us in lockdown. Could you hurry up and get the jab? And of course, from those who have the objections, hey, uh, you can't tell me what I need to put inside my body. I'm not convinced about the vaccine for a variety of reasons. And to be honest, whether those reasons are valid or not may not prove to be the issue. You don't have to put something in your body even if it turns out you're wrong. Uh, you might regret that later, but nonetheless, that is your right not to get jabbed. The question is where do rights and responsibilities interact with each other? Because in this instance, when it comes to education, a lot of the children are under 12 years old. They can't be vaccinated. So they're relying on the adults to provide the protection for them. Uh, and so we can understand why there's a special interest in protecting the young. I wonder, though, if we could have a more nuanced approach. Could it be, given that 90% of 12 and overs are vaccinated, that high schools don't need to have the no jab, no job policy? One thing's for sure, this one is going to be a real political hot potato because even though 90% of us have been happy enough to be vaccinated, it doesn't change the fact that the government has been forced to be much more strong-armed than usual. And that is uncomfortable. Even if you're vaccinated, I'm sure, you can see the point that these kinds of measures are very much an overreach for the government. They're now reaching in uh, to arenas that have traditionally been off limits for the government and your body has been one of those areas that's off limits of course they will say well nobody has made you do anything but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences for your choice so we can see that this debate will rage on for a while yet and i'd love to hear your thoughts about it try and be kind in the comments because it's not easy to have this discussion when there's such intense feelings connected to our opinions you can go to the website of course activeintelligence.nz make sure you click on that subscribe button and we'll send you the episode every week straight into your inbox we'll catch you next time on active intelligence so as some of you guys might know, I'm a music teacher and I found that one of the best ways that I can process the whole transition to online learning and teaching is to write a song. So I wrote a song. I'd like to share that with you guys now. Here we go. <laughs> oh my god, that's awesome. That is... I was not expecting that. His veins, Lindsay and Kelsey, are literally popping out of his forehead. <laughs>